right, we are continuing the book of Genesis here at Revolution Church. We like to study books of the Bible, a verse at a time, and go through it the way God has written it. Our scripture reader this morning is Pat Rivera. Pat, make your way up here. And at this time, I have two things I need to announce. Number one, the kids who want to go to the worship service for the children, they're welcome to go out to this direction. Lots of great volunteers who have great service prepared for them. It's parents' choice, though. They're welcome to stay with you if you'd rather. And so be out this direction. Also, uh, we had two adults who were volunteering in preschool this morning that had an emergency and are at the hospital right now. So if there's one adult, maybe someone who doesn't normally volunteer, there'll be other adults helping. But we need one more adult. Does anybody be willing to, to help in preschool? All right, Karen. Thank you, Karen. We appreciate you doing that. Good morning, Miss Pat. How are you? Good. Can you see the screen from there? Or you might want to step over this direction. So you all follow along. We are in Genesis chapter 46, and Miss Pat's going to read God's word for us. So Israel took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here I am. Then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again, and Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. Then Jacob set out from Beersheba. The sons of Israel carried Jacob their father, their little ones and their wives, in the wagons that Pharaoh had sent to carry him. They also took their livestock and their goods, which they had gained in the land of Canaan, and came into Egypt, Jacob and all his offspring with him, his sons and his sons' sons with him, his daughters and his sons' daughters, all his offspring he brought with him into Egypt. Now these are the names of the descendants of Israel who came into Egypt, Jacob and his, Sorry, my fault. And his sons, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn. And then it goes into a long genealogy that I'll cover later, <laughs> but we want to Miss Pat read all those names. Go ahead. He had sent Judah ahead of him to Joseph to show the way before him in Goshen, and they came into the land of Goshen. Then Joseph prepared his chariot and went up to meet Israel, his father, in Goshen. He presented himself to him and fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. Israel said to Joseph, now let me die since I've seen your face and know that you are still alive. Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I'll go up and tell Pharaoh and will say to him, my brothers in my father's household who were in the land of Canaan have come to me. And the men are shepherds for they have been keepers of livestock and they have brought their flocks and their herds and all that they have. When Pharaoh calls you and says, what is your occupation? You shall say, your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth even until now, both we and our fathers, in order that you may dwell in the land of Goshen, for every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right. How many of you read Pilgrim's Progress when you were in high school or maybe at some time Pilgrim's Progress? It used to be required reading, but now it's not in schools anymore, which is unfortunate. But outside of the Bible, Pilgrim's Progress is one of the most read books on planet Earth. 
And you say, what, how did this masterpiece that's so read for centuries become so popular? How did it, this book come about? Well, John Bunyan wrote uh, Pilgrim's Progress, and John Bunyan was a preacher in England, and he was sentenced to term in prison because he would not go along with the Church of England's doctrine. He was going to preach the Bible the way he wanted to preach the Bible and not do what the king said, and so he went to prison. Seven years away from his wife, seven years away from his eight children, seven years in isolation in prison. And someone could look at that and say, man, why is God doing this to me? I'm trying to be faithful to his word and faithful to preaching. And this is what I get, seven years of prison. But that wasn't John Bunyan's attitude. He's like, God, not, I'm not going to ask you why I'm in prison. I'm going to ask you what. What do you want me to do while I'm in prison? And God gave him the, the, the idea to write this book about the plan of salvation and this man's journey called Pilgrim's Progress, which people read all over the planet to this day. And you say, how could God bring anything good out of that? Look what God did in seven years. He, he, get, he wrote a book that changed millions of lives all over planet of Earth. Genesis chapter 46, we're going to divide it into three simple ways this morning. Number one, relying on God's plan. Number two, uh, recognizing God's providence, and number three, receiving God's provision. Okay, there's the way we'll divide it up. Let's jump into it right here, relying on God's plan. If you're ready to learn God's word, say amen. Amen. So Israel, remember God changed his name a few chapters back? Sometimes he calls him Jacob. Sometimes he calls him Israel. And somebody asked, asked me after church last week, why does God do that? Why does God jump back and forth? Well, it's kind of like your mom did to you. When you were in trouble, she said your first, middle, and last name, right? And, but when you, also everyday conversation, she might just call you by your first name. And it all depended on how Jacob was acting at the moment. If he was acting in the flesh, God called him Jacob. If he was acting in the spirit the way God called him to be, he called him Israel. So Israel took his journey. To God, he was going along with God's plan. But he took with him all that he had. Now remember, previously, Jacob uh, was, got the word from Pharaoh that, hey, you don't need to bring anything. I'm going to give you the best part of the land. But Jacob, being an old man hoarder, he's going to bring everything. He doesn't trust him. He's going to bring all of his stuff. And he comes to the place of Beersheba. Beersheba is a place that Jacob's been to six times. Every time he meets with God, it seems like God brings him back to Beersheba. And this is an important place to him. It was an important place to his father and an important place to his grandfather. Um, Beersheba was a place where several people, in fact, in the Bible, came in contact with God. Isaac, his dad, Jacob here, and both heard from God in dreams that they had at this special location. Hagar, remember when she was cast out by Sarah and she's in the desert dying of dehydration with her young child? And Elijah also met with God there in Bathsheba. This is a place where God speaks. And so God is going to do this again in his life. Bathsheba can be seen as symbolizing these events in our lives that cause us to call upon the name of the Lord. And these events are all, never usually good events. Very rarely do people have great things happen and they feel like that was the time that drew them closest to God. It's often through the pain, through the trial, and through the tragedy that we find ourselves on our knees and God meets us there. We wish it weren't so. We wish God would have a better formula for growing us spiritually. 
And it's not that God doesn't want to do it differently. It's because human beings are stubborn. When things are going good, we don't need God. We just breeze through life. You know, we recognize them. We throw them a few bucks here and there. We're, we're good. But it seems like we don't seek God's face. We don't seek God's presence until when? Times get tough. And so we need to be like Joseph. We need to be like Jacob to where tough times make us better, not make us bitter. We find ourselves saying, well, why would a good God allow bad things to happen to good people? Well, first of all, uh, bad things happen because bad people do things bad to each other a lot of times, okay? So we can't always blame God. But yes, he does allow it. But then the, then the second part of that question is also flawed. Why does he allow bad things to happen to good people? And I would join Jesus and say, who's good? There's no one good but God. We somehow think we deserve better times. And it's those bad people over there that deserve cancer, not us good people. When the Bible says that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, that there is none righteous, no, not one. When we start thinking somehow the bad things we're exempt from, it, we should be immune and it shouldn't happen to us, we're somehow thinking we're better than we are. I find it amazing when people say that, you know, well, I used to be a Christian, but I kind of fell away from God after my grandma died of cancer. I'm like, okay, wait a minute, let me see if I get this. When your grandma died of cancer, you walked away from Christianity. But when everybody else's grandma died of cancer, you didn't walk away then. So really, you're saying it's all about you and all about your grandma. Oh, so when it hits close to home, now all of a sudden, God doesn't exist. When everybody else around you was suffering and dying, you were okay with God then. But then all of a sudden, it happens to you as if it's, oh, me? I understand why he got it, why she got it, but why me, as if I'm better than others? That, that's what we really need to check out when we question God's uh, providence in this situation. It says that he met with God and he offered sacrifices. And a lot of people have a hard time with that. They're like, what's up with these animal sacrifices? Well, the animals are only symbols of what's going to come in Jesus Christ in the future. You see, Sinful people cannot approach a holy God without their sins being removed. All of us are sinners. I'm a sinner. You're a sinner. We all sin every day, all day. Okay, We try not to. And even some of the good things we do are sin. Sometimes we give money to a, a poor person, and it's really not about them. It's about making us feel better. Now I don't feel so guilty. Look, I did a good thing. See, God? Did you see that? Did you see me hand off that money? Look at me. Aren't I good? And God says, all your righteousness is like filthy rags. You're trying to impress me with you manipulating things by making, appeasing your own guilty conscience? That's not the way it works. We, we have to have our sin, our sin removed. Many people try to play the scale game. See, there's a scale. So if I pile good works over here, and I try to sin a little bit less, then the scale tips my favor, and God all of a sudden likes me. Let me tell you, the scale is like this all the time. Because we're not near as righteous as we think we are, and we're far more sinful than we really can imagine. And so we need to have the sins not outweighed, but removed. And they can only be removed by a forgiving God. Hebrews 9 says, without the shedding of blood, there is what? No forgiveness. Whenever there is a crime, whenever there is a sin, there must be a penalty. There must be a punishment. We read often in the newspapers about judges who let criminals go free. And every single person reads that and goes, that is so wrong. That is not justice. We all want justice. 
unless it's God meeting out justice for us. Then we're like, well, God be merciful, you know. We just want God to say, oh, just, just forget about it. You see, if, if uh, you invite me over to your house and I klutzily knock over your lamp, and this is a valuable lamp, and it falls to the floor and it breaks, and I'm like, oh, let me pay for that. Like, no, 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 don't worry about it. Just forget about it. It's okay. I forgive you. Don't worry about the lamp. Someone absorbed the cost. Either I absorb the cost and pay for the lamp, or you absorb the cost and do without the lamp and have to replace it. But whenever there is a transgression, whenever there is sin, someone pays. And so the Bible says that there's some, and the death penalty, the death penalty is what we deserve for our sin. Animal sacrifices provided a temporary, everybody say temporary, a temporary covering of sin and to foreshadow the perfect and complete sacrifice of Jesus. So in the Old Testament, whenever they sacrificed a lamb, pigeons, a bull, a goat, whatever it was, all those, there was nothing special about that animal's blood. It was all pointing to who? Pointing to Jesus and his sacrifice. Hebrews 9.11 goes on to say, but when Christ appeared as a high priest, he entered once for all, this is important, didn't have to be repeated, once for all into holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of whose blood? His own blood, thus securing what kind of redemption? Eternal redemption. Once for all, the sins were paid for. You see, that's an important thing. We don't have to be forgiven over and over and over again, get saved over and over again. The Bible says he, what, what, he purchased for us with his blood an everlasting, eternal redemption. You're, if you've put your faith in Christ, if you've truly been born again, you are in Christ, you are secure. You're what the Bible says, sealed to the day of redemption. You are secure in Christ. Salvation is of the Lord. It has nothing to do with you. I had a phone call this week from a guy who wanted to know what Revolution Church believes. And he said, do you believe in one saved, always saved? I said, yes, I absolutely do. Not because I want to, but because the scripture clearly teaches it. He said, well, I know a guy who was a Christian and all of a sudden he met a girl and he moved in with, him, with her and now they're living together in fornication. Do you think he's still saved? I said, well, my first question would be, was he ever truly saved to begin with? And I said, it's possible. David who was the apple of God's eye, he was his beloved. I mean, every indication we have about David, he was truly saved. He committed adultery and murder. Stop that. And I said, I believe that if he had died in that condition, he wouldn't have went to heaven. He said, no, I don't believe he would have. I said, so what you're saying is after you get saved, you have to continue to do good works. He said, yes. I said, for by grace you saved through faith, and that's not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, Lesson A, man should both. I said, if your good works can't get you saved, how in the world can your good works keep you saved? If you could lose your salvation, you would lose it five minutes after you got saved, if not less. And you say, you say well, you know, you're saying he can live with his girlfriend. I said, I, I said, the same sins of living with your girlfriend and then judging your friend for what he's doing, where do you want to draw a line on your sins here? You know, one person plays the lottery, another person lies about their taxes. Where do you want to draw the line? God draws the line at zero. <laughs> if you could lose your salvation, it would, be, it would be done. It would be a done deal. But Jesus died once for all, and what kind of redemption did he purchase? Eternal redemption. How long does eternal redemption last? Until you mess up again? No. 
See, the, the problem is there's a lot of people who think they're saved, but now they're out there living like the devil, and there seems like there's no consequences, and people point to that and say, that's not fair. And it's not, okay? That's why in Matthew chapter 7, it says on Judgment Day, there will be many people who will stand before God and say, Lord, Lord, haven't we done all these wonderful things in your name? We prophesied, we cast out demons, and Jesus says to them, depart from me, I never knew you. He didn't say, I knew you, but then you started sinning, and now I don't know you anymore. He said, I never knew you. The problem with Christians who are living in sin is because maybe they were never truly saved to begin with. That does not mean that people who are truly saved can't mess up. Again, I point you to King David. If you are in Christ, your sins, past, present, and future, are forgiven once for all. When, Jesus, when you accepted Christ as Savior, if you've made that decision, if not, I would encourage you to think about it this morning, but if you made that decision, Jesus didn't forgive all your sins up to that point, now you're on your own. That's what Mormons teach. I had a conversation with a couple of Mormon missionaries recently, and they believe Christ paid for your sins up to that point, and now it's up to you to be good the rest of the way. And that's not what the Bible teaches. Jesus died for your sins, past, present, future, once and for all. So then why do Christians need to ask for forgiveness of their sins? Isn't that what Jesus taught us when he taught us to pray? The disciples said, Lord, teach us to pray. And he said, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And what? Forgive us our debts or trespasses, depending on whether you're reading Matthew or Luke, because he's taught the same sermon twice. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. That's for believers. Why do we need to ask for forgiveness? Well, let me, let me explain it this way. And if you don't get anything else out this morning, please get this. This is what most so-called Christians and most Christian denominations don't get. They mix the two and they don't understand it. At the moment you were saved, that yellow star right there, the moment the light of Jesus Christ came in your life, you were born again, okay? You began an eternal relationship with God. You are now his child. He's your father. You're his son or daughter. That is an eternal relationship, and it is how you're related, okay? There are three ways you can be legally related to anybody. Somebody tell me one. By birth, by adoption, and what else? By marriage, exactly. By the way, I have three daughters named Jessica. You've heard, some of you heard this story before. I have a biological Jessica. We adopted a girl named Jessica. And then my son Adrian married a Jessica. So we had three Jessica Milborns in the same family. Thanksgiving was very confusing. So all three of them are related to me in a relationship that's meant to last, right? If they misbehave, does that mean they're not my daughter? They're not my daughter-in-law? No. Okay? That relationship is meant to go on. It is a straight line that goes out into eternity. And by the way, those are the three ways the New Testament describes your relationship with Christ. You are born by the Heavenly Father, born again into God's family. You are adopted by the Holy Spirit. And you are married to Christ as part of his bride. All three of those are beautiful pictures of a relationship. Now, those of you who have kids, the kid who's misbehaving and the kid who's getting straight A's, they're both equally your child. Amen? <laughs> for better or for worse, they're both equally your child. You don't say, well, you're not my kid today because you made an F, and you are my kid. In fact, you're my favorite because you keep doing the dishes. Good job. We don't do that, right? Why would we expect God to do that? You see, the ups and downs of life are what's called fellowship. 
1 John chapter 1 talks about fellowship. Some days we're walking close with God, and our walk with Him matches that straight line. And some days we stray away from God. We, go, we can go days, moments, even years away from God, and we go ups and up and down. Which one of these lines determines your eternity? The white line, relationship. You see, most Christian religions teach if you die on the red line and you're far away from God, you go to hell. That's why you better repent and get back up there close to the white line. Man, I tell you what, that, that red line, if it was mine, it'd be falling much lower than the screen, okay? We, go up, we have ups and downs all the time. So we're human. We're sinful. Our salvation doesn't depend on us. It depends on what Christ did. Not the good works you can do, but the good work on the cross that he did. That's why on the cross he said what? It is finished. Everything that needed to be done that could be done to save your soul was done on the cross. It does not depend on you. Your part is to come to him and say, I need you. That's not doing anything. That's receiving what he has done on the cross. So we have to understand these two lines. And if you can understand that, then you understand the Bible a whole lot better. In uh, 1 John 1, 9, it says, if we, who is we? Believers. 1 John chapter 1, read verse First John 1, read it. It's all about believers having fellowship with God. If we Christians confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So if I am a jerk to Tammy, Tammy's my wife, by the way, and I do that sometimes, am I now no longer married? No, the red line has gone down. <laughs> She's not happy with me. I'm not, I don't ask her to forgive me to restore the marriage. I'm asking her to forgive me to restore the fellowship, the friendship that comes with the marriage. If your child sins against you and disobeys you and they slam the door in your face, I'm not doing it, and then they come to you later and apologize, are you saying, okay, now it's a good thing you did that because you wouldn't be my child anymore? No, they're trying to restore the fellowship that comes with the relationship. It says he's faithful and he's just. Faithful means he's consistent. Have you ever gone to someone and asked for forgiveness and they just blow you off? God never does that. God always says, yes. If when your heart is right and you're in it and you really mean it, he says, he's faithful. He never says, oh, I'm in a bad mood today. Go away, ask me again to forgiveness for tomorrow. But it also, here's the interesting thing. It says that he's just. It is because God is a just God, he has to forgive you. You think, wait, but God's justice means he has to punish me. no. The reason he's a fair judge and just is he's already punished Christ for what you did. And a just judge doesn't demand double jeopardy. He can't punish the same sin twice. So he has to forgive you. Did you know that? God has to forgive you if you're in Christ because he can't punish the same sin twice. Jesus says, um, Father, as your lawyer here, I stand here to tell you as the advocate, which is what Christ is, I've already paid for this sin, so the court must forgive my child here. And the Heavenly Father says, forgiven. That's why he must forgive, and he cleanses us from all unrighteousness. So back to our text here. That's why Jacob had to offer sacrifice. He, couldn't, he knew as a sinful man he couldn't come to God and ask him for anything unless his sins were forgiven, and his sins would be forgiven through Christ to come, and this animal he's sacrificing represents what Christ would do for him in the future. By the way, people in the Old Testament are saved the same way as these people in the New Testament. People in the Old Testament looked forward to the cross and trusted in Christ and what he did on the cross. People in the New Testament, and you and I, we look back to the cross. Did you know in Galatians it says God preached the gospel to Abraham? 
Abraham knew about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Adam and Eve knew, they knew that the animal that died to cover their sins was a picture of Jesus Christ. They knew that someday the seed of a woman would crush the head of the serpent that, that caused them to sin in the first place. All throughout the Old Testament, it's all about Jesus. And it says he offered sacrifices to the God of his father, Isaac. Now what's interesting is over and over again in Genesis, you see the God of his fathers, Abraham and Isaac. But here it says only his father, Isaac, not his grandfather, Abraham. I don't know exactly what Moses is trying to do by writing this here, but here's my, here's my theory on it. He thinks about sacrificing and my dad. Sacrificing and my dad. Wait a minute. My dad was a sacrifice. Remember that story? Remember Abraham was called to sacrifice who? Isaac. And Abraham was distraught over this, but he's faithfully, he went up to the mountain, he pulls up the knife, he's ready to sacrifice it, and the angel of the Lord says, Abraham, don't, don't. It was just a test. Now I know that you will not hold back anything from me, that you truly love me. And Abraham was almost sacrificed, but now he remembers his God as he's making this sacrifice. He's saying, hey, my dad's been in this position, and I know what God did for him. And so God spoke to Israel, again, not Jacob, Israel, in the visions of the night. So he had dreams and visions and said, Jacob, Jacob. Well, all of a sudden, now what's that mean? He's flipped the coin here. He doesn't just say Jacob once, he says it twice for emphasis. In the Hebrew, they don't have exclamation points. If they want to make something emphatic, they say it multiple times. That's why Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you. Or if we're talking about God's holiness, we say, holy, holy, holy. So hey, he's saying, hey, Jacob, you know, you heel gripper, you trickster, and he says it twice for emphasis. He says, and Jacob answers, here I am. And then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down. The reason he's calling him Jacob is because he's walking in fear and not in faith. He says, I know what you're going through. You're scared right now, but don't be afraid to go down to Egypt. And see, think about this. The last time that Jacob went on a long journey, he went by himself empty-handed, and he got stuck there for 20 years working for Laban. And now he finally got back in the promised land. He's settled. He's like, I got where God wants me to be. And what? I'm 130. You want me to go to Egypt? Last time I went on a long journey, it didn't go so well. I got stuck there. I, I really don't know if I want to do this. And so, yes, he's afraid. But God says, you know what? I'm going to make of you a great nation. He remembered the promise that was given to Abraham and Isaac and now to him that I'm going to make you a great people. Right now, they're not a great people. They're just 60-some people. But God's promised to multiply them, what? Like the stars of heaven and the sand of the sea. So here's the key phrase here. I am God. He didn't just say, I'm the God of your fathers. He just said, I am God. Don't be afraid. I'm God. I don't know where to go to college. I am God. How am I going to pay the bills this month? I am God. <laughs> and the thing we need to remember is he's saying, I'm God, you're not. You see, we get in the worst of situations when we try to take control of our life and we say, I am God. And God has to take it all away from us and break us down and say, um, I am God. Say, but yeah, I, I really want to date this girl. She's not a believer. And God says, I'm God, but I want to take this job over here. I am God. Well, I want to spend the way my money makes me feel good. I'm God. And whatever you, thing you want to add to that list, 
God has a way of telling you, I'm God and you're not. And that sometimes that makes us feel deprived because we want to be in control. But in this situation, it should make Jacob feel better. Because Jacob's afraid right now. He's saying, hey, I'm God. I'm in control. I've got this for you. Just let, let that sink in, that, that he is God this morning. He, he said it that way on purpose. We, we have our agenda. We have our plans. We have the way we want our week to go, our day to go, our relationships to go, our money to go. But God says, all of that is just on loan to you. I am God. Let me be in control. And, and remember this. I saw this on a pastor's desk one time. I never forgot it. It's been like 30 years. It said on it, the, the, the sign on his desk says, God gives his best to those who leave the choice up to him. Do you believe that this morning? Do you believe that if you're like, you know what? Not my will, but yours be done, Father. Whatever you choose, I, I trust you. And God's like, good, I'm glad you did, because I got something really good for you. We need to trust God with that. We really truly need to believe that, that he is God. What if that is God's reply to every idea you have? What are you struggling with this week? What is, what's your dilemma? And God says, I'm God. And then we just let that sink in. You see, he, he needed to rely on God's plan. He said, I am the God. And he said, the God of your father. And again, here, he doesn't say, he says, he says it in the singular, not in the plural. He's reminding him what Isaac went through, that Isaac literally had his life laid down as a living sacrifice. And you're in that same situation right now. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. How many of you have ever heard that do not be afraid is in the Bible 365 times, one for every day of the year. How many of you have heard that before? It's not true. <laughs> Research it. It's a good preacherism. It sounds really good, but do the numbers on it. It's like 235. Anyway, it sounds good from the pulpit, but it's not, a good, it's not accurate. But people repeat things that aren't true all the time. But the emphasis is there to, to not be afraid. And he says, there I will make you a great nation. That's the key thing. Jacob was afraid, like, well, how can I become a great nation? How can I live and how can I do this? If all, how am I going to do that? And God's like, no, you're not going to do it. I'm going to do it. And this, again, it goes back to that one word that we don't like, and that is control. Human beings want to be in control, and we do not want to give up control. We try to control one another. We're, we can be controlling at work. We try to be controlling with our kids, controlling with other people, and we try to control God. Hey, if I... I remember one time years ago, this lady came to me and her marriage was struggling. And she came to me and said, Pastor Gary, she said, I've been going to church every Sunday for six months. I've started tithing. I've been volunteering at the church and all these things. Why, was God, why is God not healing my marriage? I'm like, what, is God a vending machine? You stick in this, this, and this, and you pull the blever and something else comes out? You don't treat God that way. He doesn't owe you anything. All the things you just said you should be doing because you love him, not because you want something from him. You ever had someone be nice to you and you find out that they're, they're trying to get something from you? Do we do that to God? I, I think we do more than we probably want to admit. God says, hey, here, I'm the one in charge here. I'm the one that's going to make you a great nation. You don't have to be stressed out about this because it's not your job anyway. So you think about his situation. He was old. He's very old. He was leaving his comfort zone. He had been in the promised land, finally got back there after serving Laban for so many years. And then he was weak, he's feeble, he thinks he's going to die, which he always thinks he's going to die, but we'll talk about that in a minute. And then he was no longer in control. Remember, Jacob is the trickster. He's used to tricking people for their birthright, tricking people 
you know, to steal the blessing, tricking Laban to manipulate the sheep so he gets wild. He's used to being in control, and now he's not, and he can't stand it. This is what he's afraid of, that he's losing control. 2 Corinthians 12, 9 says this, My power is made perfect in weakness. Let me give you some context here. The Apostle Paul. Can we all agree that he's pretty spiritual? <laughs> he wrote more books in the New Testament than anybody. He performed miracles. He received divine revelation. I'd say him and God are pretty tight. All of a sudden, he's suffering with a, we don't know exactly what it was, but he calls it a thorn in the flesh. I believe it was his eyesight, but that's another discussion. But he's asked God to heal this. He's healed other people. He's asked God to heal. And now he's asking for a healing for himself. And God says, no. It says he asked them three times. And God said, no, no, no. And God says, here's my reason. I want you to stay weak. I want you to deal with this physical malady or whatever this thorn in the flesh is. And here's why. Because my power, God's power, is made perfect in your weakness. So Paul says, okay, I'm not going to become bitter about it. I'm not going to ask God, why would you give me this thorn in the flesh? He says, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to boast about it. I'm going to brag to people, hey, guess what? I can't even see you. <laughs> and I'm writing epistles like with big old letters now, you know, and I know that you probably would even give me your very eyes if you could, if we could do a transplant. But I'm fine with that. I'm going to brag about how weak God has made me, and here's why. So that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Here's why. For when I am weak, finish it with me, then I am strong. You know, we are most Christ-like when we go through extremely difficult times and we are totally helpless and we turn to God and people see it like, that's how she made it through. That's how he survived. That's why they're, they're still married. Because they were totally broken and they relied upon Christ. And it's the power of God working in their life. Not them pulling themselves up by their own bootstraps. So God promises Jacob this. is I myself will go down with you. What are you fearful about this morning? What you need to allay those fears is the presence of God. Knowing that he is with you, that he promises. Jesus says, that lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. He says, and I will bring you up also out of it. He said, I'll take you down to Egypt and I'm going to bring you back. Now, what he doesn't tell him here is, he kind of hints to it, I'm going to bring you back dead, but I'm still going to bring you back. That's where he says, Joseph's hands will close your eyes, which is a nice way, you know, when people pass away, we literally close their eyes out of respect. And, jo and he even begs Joseph, make sure that you don't leave my bones here. Take me back to the promised land where he can be buried with Abraham and Sarah as well. So let's move to the next point here. Recognizing God's providence in this situation. Providence. The providence of God, here's a theological definition for it, is the working of God's sovereignty to continually uphold, guide, and care for his creation. Sovereignty means God's in total control. Providence means God's doing good for you using his sovereignty. You see, the two are married. God's sovereignty with God's goodness, and the overlap is where he finds us, and that's God's providence, where he provides. See the word provide in providence? He's providing for, you, for us in his, his total sovereignty. So anybody know, who, what's the smallest state in the United States? Rhode Island, which is ironic because it's not an island. But anyway, that's a whole other history lesson I'll get into this morning. So Rhode Island is the smallest. I'm from the second smallest. Anybody know who that, that's from? Delaware. You guys failed geography, evidently. 
Who cares about those little states anyway? Anyway, so who can tell me what is the capital of Rhode Island? Providence, very good. And so, yes, you're way ahead of the curve. They're slow. So they'll catch up with you, Caleb. I understand. So Providence, the, the capital of Providence, Rhode Island, was founded in, nine, in 1636 by Roger Williams, a Baptist theologian and a religious exile from the Massachusetts Bay Colony. He had to go there to flee religious persecution because the colonies hadn't quite all worked all this stuff out yet. And he, he named the area in honor of God's merciful providence, which he believed was responsible for revealing such a haven for him and his followers. That he named the city after Providence. I wonder how many people live in Providence and think about God providing for them. You see, Jacob, it says Jacob set out from Beersheba. The last time he set out was, again, to go to get a wife, and he was running from his brother because he stole his birthright, and he was going to kill him. The sons of Israel carried Jacob, their father, their little ones, their wives, in the wagons that Pharaoh had sent them. So this is interesting. God is using this pagan king to provide all these Cadillacs, uh, Escalades, to make their way down to Egypt here. And he, they're moving everything, the whole family. So in the midst of a deadly famine, with no apparent way to survive, remember, that's what's going on. There's no food in the land. They've already bought food twice, and now they're, they're running out of money. Here in the midst of this deadly famine, with no way out, Jacob now finds himself in a royal escort provided by the most powerful man on the planet. Do you think that's what jo uh, Jacob was thinking a couple days before? When they're starving and there's no food? Oh, I know what's going to happen. The most powerful man on the planet is going to bring me down and feed me. That's not what he was thinking. But God, God works out things way better than we can even ask for. In fact, isn't that what Ephesians 3.20 says? Now to him, who's him? God. Now to God, who is able to do what? Far more abundantly than all that we could ask or think according to the power that works in us. What is it that you need to ask God for that, to give him a chance to just show off how powerful he is? Ask for something so big that when it's answered, you're like, that was totally God. You see, we, we ask for things and then like we get a raise and people say, well, you worked hard. But I remember it was approximately uh, about two years and a few months ago, me, Nathan, our worship leader, uh, Charles Avila, and Chris Sharp, we were meeting at Panera Bread for men's discipleship. And I challenged the guys, because some other pastor challenged me this, let's ask God for something that's so big that when he does it, we're going to say, look what God did. He did abundantly more than we could even ask or think. And so each one of the guys asked for something, and they said, Pastor Gary, what's, what's yours? I said, you know, we've been saving up money to try to buy a building. I, I want God to just give us a building. And here we are. <laughs> and we're talking, it was like six or seven weeks after that, 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 that we ran into the, pe the sweet people here at Bethel Church, and one thing led to another, and way faster than I wanted it to go. I thought it might take a year to have a merger. Within a few weeks, boom, done. You know, And God answered it, way abundantly above all we could ask or think. I'm challenging you this morning. Ask God for that. Now, remember what James says, don't ask to consume it upon your lusts. Ask for the glory of God, right? But I challenge you to ask God for something bigger than you could ever imagine. They also took all their livestock and their goods, which they had gained in the land of Canaan. God had blessed them. And they came into Egypt, Jacob, and all his offsprings. There wasn't one rebellious grandchild saying, no, I'm not going. They all went. What a testimony to Jacob, by the way. What a blessing, I'm sure it was. It was his sons. It's his grandsons. It's his granddaughters. They're all going. All, every single one of them are going down. 
Now, these are the names of the descendants of Israel. And he goes into this long genealogy. He starts with Reuben. Now, I'm not going to go word by word, but I do want to point out some things here. Who was Jacob's favorite wife? Rachel. But notice who, for a long time, you know who's being listed first now? It's always Leah first. Leah first. He finally accepted that the Messiah is going to come through the line of Judah, and Leah was the one God intended. And when God, when, when I got tricked into marrying her, I should have just said, one wife is enough. It wasn't what I planned, but I will stick with it. But he kept adding wives, they ended with four, and all that, because they kept trying to manipulate God's plan. Go figure, Abraham, Sarah did the same thing. But you see Leah there, and then you see the, the highlighted the wives, and then the different children. There's 13 men named all together. How many tribes of Israel are there? 12, well, why do we have 13? Because Joseph isn't one of the tribes of Israel. God gave him, because he was the favorite son, a double blessing, so he named two tribes after his sons. So we don't have a tribe of Joseph. We have a tribe of Manasseh and Ephraim. But it's, it's an interesting overview. But here's what else I want you to see in this genealogy. One of these guys was a son of a Canaanite woman. In fact, it's interesting. Simeon, remember the story about a m- month ago? His sister was raped by a Canaanite. And then the Canaanite says, hey, we want to buy your daughter and marry her. And he's like, that's sick. You guys are gross. But he says, you know what? This ain't going to happen unless all y'all get circumcised. So they agreed. And so while they're all recovering from circumcision, Simeon and one of his brothers went through swords and just killed all the men. He hated Canaanites so bad. And then guess what he does years later, big hypocrite? He marries a Canaanite. And yet God uses it. And then one of his, his daughter-in-law marries Ur, he dies. Marries Onan. Onan refuses to give her a child, so then he dies. And then she tricks him into, she dresses up as a prostitute, tricks him into sleeping with her. I mean, this thing gets all so sketchy, right? And then all of a sudden, Laban tricks him in and gives him a daughter. Joseph goes down into Egypt as a slave. And then the daughter of Potiphar, he marries an Egyptian woman. And then the, the, the son of Bilhah, a, a handmaid. Look at all the sketchy stuff that happens in this genealogy. And yet God says, okay, here you go, my chosen people. The nation of Israel. Look at them. The model for society. Don't tell me God can't use your brokenness. Don't tell me that God can't use all your failures of your past. This is just the beginning of the list. God uses our brokenness. Romans 8.28 That God works all things all means the good and the bad. All things together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. God can take your brokenness. God can take your failures. Now, he's not condoning them. He's not saying, hey, go out there and make some mistakes so I can use you. That's not what he's saying at all. He's saying, don't let Satan convince you you can't be used of God. If I can use these 12 monkey heads, then I can use you. And the, the history is there. The total number of males of this clan was 70. So there are 66, Jacob himself plus Joseph and two sons. It's interesting, um, from the time God called Abraham, it took at least 25 years just to have one son. 25 years, one son. And then it took 60 years just to add a second son in the genealogy. It took 50 to 60 years to have Jacob to have 12 sons by four different women, which God does not condone. But in 430 years, Israel would leave Egypt with 600,000 men, not counting women, and children. It took the family 215 years just to grow to 70, but in 430 years, they will grow to over 2 million. 
the reason I bring up all these numbers is God moves slower than you want him to. But he moves. 25 years just to have one son. But then once God takes off, he really knows how to take off, right? In Acts chapter 7, verse 14, people who are skeptics of the Bible and say, oh, the Bible's full of contradictions, they point to this one. They say, Stephen said that there's 75 in the Bible, but Genesis says there was 70. See, contradiction in the Bible. And that's only because Stephen was quoting from the Septuagint, which is a Greek translation of the Old Testament. And they all they did was count um, Joseph's five grandsons. They counted them in as a descendants of Jacob, which they were. So the number in the Septuagint wasn't wrong. They just added the grandsons. There's a lot of times people point to contradictions in the Bible. And if you just would just read for five more minutes, you could figure it out on your own. It's not a contradiction. It's interesting, in this genealogy we just read in Genesis, in First Chronicles, it names the same list, but there's different names. And then people say, aha, see, contradictions in the Bible. And all these are minor differences that where names were pronounced differently because First Chronicles was written centuries later. It'd be kind of like if I said, Gregory Dement. And then 50 years later, I say Greg Dement. Or think about the spelling difference between James and Jim. James and Jimmy. When you were young, you were probably called Jimbo or Jimmy. And then when you got older, you are called James. And then people change your name. Is that a contradiction? The Bible does the same thing. We, we call, what, you know what's really weird? You know, consider these old school names. Anybody know what the, the nickname for Margaret is? Peggy. Where did it get Peggy from Margaret? Now there's Marge, Margie, Maggie, but it's like, where? so if, if I, I had an Aunt Margaret, but we all called her Peggy. Dorothy is Dot. Richard is Dick. I mean, these are just crazy, weird, old school names. Do we call them contradictions? No. The Bible does the same thing, but people will point to them and say, see, uh-huh, there's a contradiction in the Bible. No, there's not. These are all solved. That brings us to the third point, receiving God's provision, receiving God's provision. So they go down to Goshen. Goshen was the choice place in Israel. In fact, if you look at it from a satellite, here's the, the follow the red line to where they traveled. And there's the Nile Delta. Remember in school, what is a delta? You know, a river splits out in the different directions and it makes the land very fertile there. And, uh, and so here's a up closer map here. And there's Goshen right in the prime green area of Egypt. And Joseph wants to give him the best and so does Pharaoh. And so... Here's the big reunion. Jacob comes and finally he meets his son that he thought was dead. And Joseph presents himself to his father and he fell on his neck. He hugs him and he wept on his neck for a good while. Now I want you to notice what's missing. When Jacob, when Joseph revealed himself to, his, to Benjamin, the Bible says they both wept, Right? When Joseph revealed himself to his brothers, it only says he wept. And now when he reveals himself as his father, it only says Joseph wept. It doesn't say Jacob wept. Is he cold-hearted? What's the deal? I mean, it's not like the Bible only mentions what Joseph does. It clearly said Joseph and Benjamin wept. But here, it makes no mention of that. I would believe that, that ask the question, how is it that one who has suffered more than all of them has the most tender heart? He could say, hey guys, I have a reason to be bitter. You sold me into slavery. Potiphar's wife falsely accused me. I spent time in a dungeon. I interpreted dreams and asked them one thing. Don't forget at me. And guess what? They forgot me. 
Have any of you suffered as much as I have? I have a right to be bitter. And yet the one who had suffered the most was the most tenderhearted. He's the only one weeping in all three reunions. And see, that's what we need to think about is when you're going through hard times, you have a choice. You have a choice. You can let it make you bitter or let it make you better. The same sun that hardens the clay melts the wax. It's your choice in how you choose to respond. Israel says to Joseph, now let me die. Thanks, Dad. Good to see you too. <laughs> Since I have seen your face, I know that you are still alive. That's all I want. Some theologians have said, this is ba- this, he's basically saying, I'm so happy I could die. I, I don't think so. You look at the context of Genesis. It's like Joseph, Jacob it seems obsessed with dying. How many times in his 80s he said, I'm dying. My end is near. I need to bless my children. We're now 50 years later, he's still talking about dying. And guess what? After this, he's going to live 17 more years. Do you all remember Fred Sanford? Oh, it's the big one. It's the big one. I'm going this time. And I, I, that's what I see Jacob. He's just like always, I'm, I'm going to die. I'm going to die. You all need to ask your mom and dad who Fred Sanford was. Okay. So Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh, and I will say to him, here's what I'm going to say. I'm going to get you all set. Okay, I'm going to go to the big guy. Because he already said, I'm like a father to Pharaoh. Think about that relationship. He said, my brothers and my father's household who were in the land of Canaan have come to me. And of course, Pharaoh is the one who said, hey, go get your dad. Here's all the carts you want. Go, go get them. And, they, and he said, I'm going to tell him you guys are shepherds. For they have began keepers of livestock and they have brought their flocks and their herds. They've got all these sheep with them. The thing is, Egyptians hate sheep. Egyptians hate shepherds. And he's going to go tell them this. He's not too embarrassed. Hey, uh, my family, they're all the kind of people you hate. Just want to let you know that. And when Pharaoh calls you and he says, what's your occupation again? Here's what I want you to say. Your servants have been keepers of livestock. We're shepherds. From, we've, that's all we've ever done from the time we were little up till now. Both we and our fathers. This has been our family industry for decades, for centuries. We're shepherds. And here's why. So that you may dwell on the land of Goshen. In other words, I want you guys in Goshen. I want you in the farthest eastern part of Egypt, away from the rest of the culture, so that God's chosen people can be distinct and separate. Because I know if you guys are in the middle of Egypt, do you know what you're going to do? You're going to marry Egyptian women. You're going to give your daughters to Egyptian men. I need to keep you over here. And the way, here's my plan to do it. Tell them the truth. Tell them you're shepherds. He'll be like, oh, i got a great place over here. You guys can stay. And that's exactly what he does. He had thought all this out. So the question here this morning is, are you relying on God's plan? You may be totally frustrated with the way your life's going right now because you're not relying on God. You're relying on yourself, your own ability, your own education, your own willpower, your own smarts. But I'm going to challenge you this morning, just rely upon God. Do you recognize God's providence? Do you look back on your past and say, I wish I could have done things differently. I really hate that this happened back there. I wish I didn't. And just woulda, coulda, shoulda. Instead of saying, you know what? I now see how God used every step of the way of this broken road to bring me right here. And are you receiving God's provision? God wants to provide for you. I'm not talking about name it and claim it and everybody should be a millionaire and wear a Rolex. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about God's best life for you in the sense of you're Christ-like and whatever it takes to get there to be Christ-like. Are you relying upon that? The same is true if you don't know Christ. You may say, well, I want to go to heaven when I die. Are you relying on God's plan or your plan? 
Man's plan is, I better be good. I better keep the Ten Commandments. I better give to the poor and give to the church. I better volunteer. And if I do enough good stuff, God will accept me. Um, no, he won't. There's none righteous, no, not one. We do not get saved based on our own good works, but on the work of Christ. Do you recognize God's providence? Do you see that we call this the year 2023 because 2,023 years ago, a man was, God became the God-man, lived amongst us the perfect life. He lived the life that you should have lived, and he died the death that you should have died. And all of history points to that cross. That's God's providence. And that's how God chose to provide for you salvation. Do you receive God's provision? That all of history, where you were born, what country you were born, what year you were born, all of it is orchestrated by God to bring you to this point to either accept Christ or to reject him. You see, God provided clothing for Adam and Eve and that covered their sins because of what they had done. God provided an ark for Noah and his family to protect them from the punishment that the world deserved. God provided a ram to take Isaac's place instead of paying for the sins of the family. God provided the Passover lamb so that God could pass over them in Egypt and, and forgive them. God provided manna from heaven to unthankful people. God provided water from the rock, and Paul tells us that rock was Christ. God provided Boaz for Ruth when she was a pagan unbeliever and she was brought into the promise of the, of the children of Israel. God provided the bronze serpent for all those who would look up and be healed from their snake bites. God provided a David to defeat the Goliath. God provided the fourth man in the fire for the three Hebrew children, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. God provided a wall for Nehemiah for their salvation from their enemies. God provided Esther to save the Jews from genocide. God provided Jesus to save you from your sins. Do you know him? Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? Father in heaven, thank you so much for this story. And just like every other chapter in the Bible, we see the gospel all over it. We see Jesus as the one provided for us. And Father, I pray that we would live a life that's thankful for the salvation you've given us. But Lord, I want to pray for those who don't know you, for someone who may be watching online or sitting here with us who's never made that decision. They've never crossed that line of faith. I pray that they would accept your providence, that they are here not by accident, but here by your divine hand. I pray that they would receive Christ as Savior. They'd recognize they're a sinner and they'd realize Jesus was the righteous one who traded places with them. We thank you for all this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. If you need to know more about salvation or how to trust Christ, there's my cell phone number. I'd love to take you to lunch, buy you some coffee. Let's talk about that. Um, Alon, would you like to come help me with um, question and answer time? You could text in any questions you have. Um, right to that number right now. And it looks like we have one question right now. If you have others, you can either raise your hand or text that in. Let me get you. Uh, is this mic right here okay, Matthew? Good? Okay. There you go. All right. There's the first question. Jacob had a gift to interpret dreams. When should people use their gifts? When God tells them to? or always, even if they are living in sin? Oh, that's, that's a really good question. And you mean Joseph, right? I think they, mean, they meant Joseph. Joseph's the one to interpret the dreams. So 
So Paul says uh, in Ephesians that God gave gifts to the church and that our spiritual gifts are best used in the context of the church. So, and then you can read in Romans uh, 12, yeah, Romans 12 and in 1 Corinthians in a couple of chapters, a list of gifts. Um, something I've changed my view on in the last few years is I don't believe those gifts, those lists are meant to be exhaustive. Like it's just those. Not, I'm not the one that came up with that. I've learned that from some other pastors that there's all kinds of gifts that, you know, Paul could have written 12 chapters naming gifts and wouldn't have been done because our gifts are as unique as you are. So you may, there's gifts of administration, gifts of charity, gifts of mercy, on and on, and there's other gifts. Those gifts are best used in the church, but not just the church. So remember um, Galatians 6.10, it says, As you therefore have opportunity, let's do good to all men, but especially to those of the household of faith. So be generous to everybody. Go mentor a student at Alhan Elementary School, right? But your best mentoring happens here. It's not one or the other. I know believers who all the good works they do are outside their church and they do nothing for their church. And I know other believers who all the good works they do are in their church and they do nothing outside of their church. Neither approach is biblical. So then the question is, living in sin. Um, well, de- define living in sin. Most people define living in, living in sin, meaning I'm choosing this lifestyle and I don't, want, I don't have any plans to change it. Like, that's not, like, we can, we can uh, be selfish in a moment and ask God to forgive that. We're not planning on being, doing that same selfishness again tomorrow. But then there's some choices, like a guy who's addicted to pornography and has no plans of quitting. He refuses to get a filter on his phone, refuses anything. That's living in sin because it's like there's no plans to change. That's when you, you there's like a no-win situation. Should you use your gifts? Yes. <laughs> Go ahead and use them, but... Your gifts were best used when you are fully surrendered to God. Uh, that's why Paul says, I beg you, brethren, by the mercies of God, you present yourself a living sacrifice. Leave all that behind. Be holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service, serving God with your gifts. So um, we're all struggling together. So let's say there's someone who's living in, in a sin, and you can fill in the blank with whatever. Yeah, start serving. Start doing what you do. Okay, and maybe God can use that in the process and start making plans to exit. Okay, First uh, Corinthians ten says there's no temptation taking you over, but except is common to man. And God is faithful that with every temptation there's a way of escape. Start looking for the way out. Start looking for the way out. Good question. Really good question. Any others? There was a second part. Okay. How do you know if you have a gift and what is the purpose for the gifts? Well, the purpose for the gifts I, I answered to glorify God in the church and in the world. So I won't go elaborate on that. Uh, how do you know the gifts? Other people will recognize it in you. I, there's nothing more beautiful than seeing someone exercise their gift. And there's nothing more horrific than seeing someone try to exercise a gift that they don't have. <laughs> it'd be, seriously, it'd be like if, the, if I think I have the gift of singing and I get up here and sing, you guys are going to be like, oh my gosh, somebody needs to tell him that they have, he has no talent at all. So the confirmation from the body of Christ, like let's say Greg teaches a lesson and somebody besides his mom says, hey, that was really good. You, you have a gift, you know? And how do you know if you're called to preach? People start confirming in you, hey, you, you really seem to know what you're doing. You, man, you nailed that song. Um, you're really good at administration. 
the body of Christ will confirm it in you. And there's biblical references for that, but that, that's a great, I hope that answer all parts of that. Yes. Okay. Anybody else have a question? How should someone respond when they have been praying for years for God to do something big and he has not answered? For example, dealing with infertility, finding a spouse, or getting a new job. All right, that's a big question. So I go back to James. You have not because you ask not. It's some, one reason that sometimes prayers aren't answered because you're not really asking. Because how did Jesus teach us to ask? He talked about a widow who someone stole from her. She goes to a judge and says, hey, judge, this guy, I need justice. He's taking my stuff. And the judge is like, I don't have time for you. I don't have time for you. And every day, day and night, I need justice. I need justice. And she pestered him. And he's like, all right, all right, I'll give you justice. And he's saying, he's not describing that God is like, doesn't want to hear it. He's saying, I need you to be persistent. You know, you have not because you ask not. And the Bible says, ask, seek, knock. You need to be persistent with your prayers. But number two, you need to pray in line with God's heart. Like if I keep praying for a Mercedes year after year and God's not giving it to me, maybe it's because I'm wanting to do it selfishly. James says the second reason you don't have your prayers answered is because you ask to consume it upon your own lust. Do you want to be fertile so that you can have a child that looks like you? Or are you willing to say, God, not my will, but yours be done. I'll, I'll adopt. I will, I'll give birth. I'll do whatever you want me to do, God, and I'm willing to accept either one. Or is it because of selfish reasons you're wanting to make sure you only have a child when there's millions of children out there that need to be adopted? I'm not saying that you shouldn't have your own child. I'm just saying you need to weigh those options. Um, what was the, did I answer all parts of the question? Yes. Okay, so maybe we're praying for the wrong thing, or if you keep aligning, and you, the more you're in the Word, and the more you seek wise counsel, if it confirms it, keep praying, or that maybe you should say, you know what, I think I've been asking for the wrong reason. All right, next question. There's three more. Do you think someone's gift could correlate with a fear that they have? Oh, absolutely. Moses, we think he was a stutterer. He talks about his tongue was tied. And he's like, you, you, you want me to speak to Pharaoh? And God's like, yeah, yeah, I do. So God can make you do the very thing you're afraid of. So I, I, I think absolutely. Uh, like Jaime, we were talking yesterday at Walmart, uh, how he's afraid of speaking in public. And people think, and he's shy, you know, but Jaime's going to be preached up here one of these days soon, I'm sure. So anyway, we'll see. <laughs> but anyway, you, you never know. God, God I, I remember when Patrick used to lead worship for us, and he would lead worship with his eyes closed, and you all thought he was just so into it, worship the Lord. He said he was scared to look at you because you guys made him nervous. I, ask him. Ask him to, if that story is not true. Okay. Um, Should we be praying every day for God's guidance and give him the reins? That's a loaded question. I, I would think that's yes. I would say yes. Praying every day for God's will. I mean, think about it. Jesus, the Son of God, said, Lord, if it's possible, take this cup from me. But nevertheless, not what I want, but your will be done. If he had to pray that, how much more do we have to pray that? Okay. I think that's where we'll end. Are we doing a walkaway song? Where's Nathan? We're not. Okay. All right. Let's stand and let's pray.